Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's, it's performative. You're performing. And I think what you're performing is courage. That is, we think that if I say I have no regrets, it's a sign that I'm courageous. But that's false courage. Real courage is staring your regrets in the eye and doing something about them. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 228. Oh boy, the indomitable, incomparable, water-soluble, Daniel Pink, how are you? Inimitable, irreplaceable. <laughs> the power of regret. I just want you to know, I tweeted out earlier today that I was talking to you. I said I really liked the thesis. I, I just checked it a second ago, and someone was like, what do you mean? Like, regret's stupid. Let me ask, how, what inspired you to even jump into the, this and stir things up? Well, um, because the people, like you just mentioned, don't know what they're talking about. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> And, um, you know, it started off in some ways somewhat, somewhat personal in that I had regrets of my own and I wanted to reckon with. But what I found is that this philosophy of no regrets is 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 wrong. Uh, I, I don't know what wrong philosophically or morally, but it's wrong as a matter of science. There's 60 years of science saying that everybody has regrets, that regret is one of the most common emotions we have, uh, arguably the most common negative emotion that we have. Uh, it is ubiquitous in the human experience. Uh, and it also, if we handle it right, it is useful. Uh, it is a transformative emotion. And so what I'm trying to do here is actually reclaim this negative emotion, which is why, like, like sort of, you, you know, there's, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to contest this proposition with people like the one you just mentioned by putting the word regret in very large capital letters in the center of the cover. Our guest in this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast is Daniel Pink, the five-time New York Times bestselling author of Win and To Sell as Human and Drive and A Whole New Mind. He's also the host of a podcast called The Pink Cast. And before that, he hosted Crowd Control, a television show about human behavior. He also has a masterclass on sales and persuasion. The last time Dan was on the show was nine years ago, in episode 37, when we talked about motivation and the psychological intricacies of both what drives us and what diminishes those drives to do just about anything, but especially go to work in a place that doesn't offer autonomy, mastery, or purpose. In this episode, we are discussing his latest book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. 
a project that was inspired in part by how often the phrase no regrets was popping up in popular culture. When he checked with the U.S. Library of Congress, he found more than 50 books with that title, No Regrets. It's also in a lot of songs and a whole lot of memes and a lot of tattoos. So he checked out what the science on the subject had to say, and he found that this idea that to live a good life, one must always look forward and remain positive and effortfully, purposefully ignore and forget and disregard and push down all that one might recall from the past with some pain and shame and remorse and regret is not something most mental health professionals and philosophers and spiritual leaders and so on would recommend. Still, as he puts it, there's a sense in modern popular culture that regret is, quote, a toxin in the bloodstream of happiness. So, thanks to this, this motto of no regrets has reached the level of a much-shared personal credo, one that is unsupported by the evidence we've accumulated in psychology, neuroscience, mental health professions, and when you get down to it, history itself. So, that's what we're going to talk about right now with Daniel Pink. Uh, full disclosure, I was like, I don't know, like maybe, maybe not. But but you you got me right off the bat by with your opening stories about people from a lot of different domains expressing like there's whether it's someone making a song about it or it's a uh, an actor actress or a politician i particularly enjoyed the the very first thing i thought was the meme of no regrets and yeah uh, and i was astonished to find that you tracked down some no regrets people uh and some no regrets tattoo people uh, and it's a way you kind of wade into it what do, what do you think started or what do you think perpetuates that as a thing, because I've seen it everywhere too, and I think I may have even yeah. felt it a few times. Why is that something sure. that's at the top of our consciousness? No regrets, baby. Uh, because it, partly because we've been sold a bill of goods, um, and we we think that that it's important to be positive all the time, that it's important never to look back, and that's just wrong. I mean, the truth of the matter is is that it, it's important. You know, positive emotions are incredibly important. They're, they're enormously important, and, and positivity is very helpful to us, but we don't want only that, and that, and that negative emotions actually serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think the big problem is, is that we have been conditioned to believe that we should always be positive, we should always look forward, and that is not a healthy and effective blueprint for living. And as I said earlier, it runs against what a half century of science tells us about how our brains and minds work. Yeah, I want to. We're going to get in, into that because some of the things that you these this, a lot of the studies you illustrate that you use as illustrations never heard of them, and I was blowing my mind. I was like, "Wow, this is a whole domain of psychology and neuroscience that I'd never played around in." And I really dig that about any book that comes along. You started. You, you just mentioned about uh, we need a, a collection of things. I love to use portfolios as your uh, metaphor. <laughs> the idea of like a financial mm, portfolio yeah. and putting all your eggs in one basket. If you'd like to talk about that for a second, I think that's a neat way to sort of segue into the rest. Sure. Um, I mean, that's just my ham-handed attempt to find a way to discuss this, what I think should be fairly self-evident, which is that um, we should have a mix of emotions. So if we think about our, our, our emotions as a portfolio, 
Um, and same with it, we have a portfolio of investments. We would never want to be have an investment portfolio that was only equities or there's only bonds or there's only one kind of stock or only one kind of industry. We want some diversification. And the same thing is true with our emotions. Uh, if we think about our emotions as a portfolio, we want to have positive emotions. We want to have a lot of positive emotions. <laughs> we want to have more positive emotions than negative emotions. All right. There's no question about that. I'm all for positive emotions. However, <laughs> we don't want to have only positive emotions because negative emotions, particularly our most common and transformative negative emotion of regret, are useful if we treat it right. And so let me just give you let me just give you an example of that. Imagine if we didn't have the negative emotion of fear. Imagine if your emotional portfolio didn't include fear. You would be dead, McRaney, mm -hmm. right? Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, the building is burning, but I don't have fear. And then you die. Or, or think about, or, or do you want to? Do we want to extinguish a negative emotion like grief from our portfolio, from our emotional repertoire? No, I don't think we do. As horrible as grief is, the reason we grieve is because we love. There's a purpose behind it, and so, um, and so, I just want to normalize negative emotions in general. Recognize they should be part of our portfolio, not the majority holdings, but an essential in diversifying and learning and growing. And then when we line up these negative emotions, what we find is that regret is the most ubiquitous and the most useful. You're hired. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm always impressed by how fantastic you are in, in an interview, but all, and then also just how you go about putting together a book project. You don't half-ass these things, or at least if you do half-ass them, you hide your uh, half-assness very well. Because No, I half-ass half every other aspect of my life except for book writing. That It comes through because as I'm reading the book, I'm like, wow, this is just airtight. And, it, and oh, wait, now I want to read this part. Now I want to read this part. And you do these cool things. Like in this book, you created the American Regrets Project and it informed the writing and it also informed the like format and tone of the book. I'm going to ask you what that is, but I wanted to mention how nice it was to see these actual regrets that people have that they've spoken about and written about that, for this project. And they're seated in before the chapters and they were so compelling to me. Someone regretted uh, not getting a flute. Someone regretted getting married, someone regretted stealing candy bars when they were a kid and they remembered it until their, for the last 60 years. Someone regretted not getting in bed with their dying husband and spending more time just holding him. They, were, they ran the gamut and they, it really just brought me into the fold in a way that I wasn't expecting. I was like, yes, I'm happy about this science stuff. I really like uh, reading Dan Pink's stuff, but this, this cleaved close to the bone. It was a really impressive. What is the American Regrets Project? Well, I did I did multiple things. One was the American Regret Project was a quantitative survey where I did a large public opinion poll of the U.S. population to try to get at American attitudes of regret. And I also did something called the World Regret Survey. And that was a massive collection of regrets from around the world uh, I, with almost no publicity, just a few tweets and a newsletter mentioned. We ended up with... 15,000 regrets from over from 105 countries. We're now over 19,000 regrets from 109 countries. It's just an incredible collection of regrets from around the world. And so what I was trying to do was, you know, uh, crack the code about regret and do it in a way that was credible. So certainly looking at the science is a big part of it. You know how to, you've done that in your books and in your podcast and a lot of the stuff that you've done. 
Um, but I also wanted to do a quantitative survey because um, you can, um, it, it's so much easier and cheaper to do now than any other time since I've been writing. Uh, and then this World Regret Survey ended up being a trove of incredible material because people were incredibly willing to share these little mini sagas about their life. And that proved to be revelatory. Well, all of this is preamble to this fantastic question. And I love questions like this because one of the first things I did with How Minds Change was ask a lot of scientists, hey, could you define belief for me? Mm. And that didn't oh, wow. work out uh -huh. very well because yeah. the ones that had the most expertise were the ones that were most unwilling. They were like, uh, I don't really have a definition. Like, you, this, all you study is this one thing. That's why I don't have a definition for you. I imagine it's very difficult with, with an idea like regret as well. So I'll just ask you now that you've written the book, uh, what is regret and why do you label this as less a thing and more of a process? Uh, well, it is, it's a, it's an emotion and it's a negative emotion. It's an emotion that makes us feel bad. And it's emotion that springs exactly as you say, from a process, um, actually from a pretty amazing, some pretty amazing capabilities of our brains and our minds. Um, it is where we go backward in time uh, imagine we, so we, so we get in a time machine, we go backward in time, which is kind of amazing in itself that our minds can do that. And then not only that, we end up changing what really happened. Okay. That's the storytelling part of it. So it's time travel and storytelling. We get in a time machine, we go backward in time, we rewrite what really happened. Then we get back in our time machine come back to the present. But remember, since we've changed the past, the present is now reconfigured. And we imagine a situation that the present is better, uh, where our lives are better off because we had chosen smart, more wisely. We had decided more intelligently. We had taken that action. We had not taken that action. And so, um, and, and so it, it, it's really, regret is really a testament to how muscular and dexterous our, our brains are, uh, muscular and dexterous our minds are. But um, a, a way to think about it, it's a, it's a negative emotion where we think about the past and wish we had done things differently. I dig this so much. I remember interviewing, um, and I may be pronouncing your name incorrectly, Tally Sherrett or Shiro, she, uh, uh -huh. about optimism bias. And she had sort of laid the groundwork for the idea of the difference between retrospection and prospection. Mm -hmm. And I'm reading that part of your book. And um, uh, I love this, this seeing this more as a very human, very... Sa homo sapien superpower of yeah. I can remember the past then I can imagine if I had done something differently the future would also be different from that past through my present into my current future and you blend these two things together and that's what's happening in a moment of regret it, it, that completely reframes it for me I think that is the coolest thing in the whole book I, I, I apologize if, the, if there are other things that are more worthy of that I just no yeah you just you the reader decides what's worthy I'm gonna so that's, that's cool that's the thing I'm gonna tell people forever that's the one I'm gonna that's that's yeah. the campfire road trip thing I'm going to tell people about you know <laughs> you know what regret really is and go into yeah. this whole concept but it's pretty amazing it's I'm, I'm glad that you I'm not surprised but I'm glad that you share my sense of wonder at that at our ability to do that because it's pretty freaking remarkable yeah uh, yeah this is this is, this is one reason why regret doesn't develop in kids until age seven or eight like little kids they're like like their brains haven't developed enough to have this capacity. It's also why certain kinds of brain damage, neurodegenerative disorders interrupt our ability to do this because it requires, you know, incredible cognitive dexterity. Yeah, that, that study you talk about, they like uh, someone rides, a, you have these two different scenarios. Someone's riding a bike 
and uh, I don't. I probably shouldn't step step on top of it, but I love that this, that you have a study that at a certain age, around seven, you, children identify moments of regret the same way adults will, but at age five and younger, just no don't way. get it. They don't get it. Blows my they mind. Don't get it be, because their brains haven't. Be, because this is for exactly the reasons we're talking about. Because it's actually pretty complicated. Um, you know, it involves. I mean, if you think about it, it, it involves you know, time travel in your head, which is freaky in itself, but it also involves um, imagining a world that runs counter to what really happened. And then actually imagining a current world that is now different because you have resorted the pieces in the past. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. And so you have to, and so, so to me, it's like, it's like, you got to go back to, you know, you got to go back to, I think was a fair, a fairly reductive question, but a, but an interesting question, an important question, which is like, okay, if we can do this, what's the point of being able to do this, especially when doing this makes us feel bad. So we have this thing that's incredibly cognitively sophisticated. And the end result is that we feel bad about it. Okay. <laughs> what's the point? And the obvious answer is that somehow it must be useful. And the answer to the, the answer to that guess is that, yes, it's extremely useful if we deal with it right. That, that regret is, as these two Dutch scholars who studied this topic have said, regret is part of our cognitive machinery. It's part of how our brains work. It is a, it is a functional aspect of our brain if we treat it properly. And the problem is, is that we haven't, we haven't treated it properly. Yeah. It's a, we're definitely in a bizarre cultural moment to say to, to the suggestion that no one should regret anything, or if you're laden with regret, ignore that. Um, really bizarre after reading your book. The I wanted to talk about a couple things before I jump into that because you you kind of you you dissect regret like it's a like like it's a face hooker, an alien. Uh, like you're trying to <laughs> you're trying to figure out what is it, what is this thing? How, why would it work this way? Uh-huh. One of the things you pointed out. Uh, this comparison thing we're talking about, creating these counterfactuals of an alternate past, alternate future. But I saw this in the studies that you pointed out that um, you have to be a certain age or you have to have a certain brain functioning online to, to accomplish. It's this blame part of it that I think is really interesting. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah, I'd like to hear you talk about that. Yeah. Uh, blame, is, blame is one way to look at it. The other thing about it is, is yeah, blame is a good way to put it. Um, it's, it's, you know, another sort of more sterile way of put it is is agency. Mm. That is, regret is your fault. There's a difference between regret and a negative emotion like disappointment um, or even shame. And it's really important. But the, the contrast between regret and disappointment is extraordinarily important mm-hmm. uh, because disappointment in some ways is regret without agency. Uh, disappointment is not your fault. Regret is your fault. And that's why it hurts more because it's Mm self-inflicted. So the best example of this, um, is, is comes from a Janet Landman who used to teach at the university of Michigan. And she tells the story of say a a six-year-old girl who loses a tooth and at night before she goes to sleep, the girl puts this lost tooth underneath her pillow for the tooth fairy. And then she goes to sleep. She wakes up the next morning. She lifts up her pillow. And alas and alack, the tooth is still there. She's disappointed. But her parents regret not replacing the tooth with a dollar. Right? So the girl is disappointed, but it's not her fault. Her parents regret it because it is their fault. 
I mean, it's not mine. It's it's Janet Lambin's. I mean, another another even you know, if you want a more cliche example of it is, it's like you know, you can you, you know, you can, I can be disappointed that it's raining outside, but I can't regret that it's raining outside because I didn't make it rain. I can regret that I didn't bring an umbrella, even though I looked at the rain <laughs> at the at the at the weather forecast. That's the Dan Pink secret sauce right there. That was that was such a good example. I love <laughs> that's the one I'll steal. So thanks. I. I I love uh, one of the studies was like someone gets sick after visiting a restaurant they often go to, or someone gets sick visiting a restaurant they've never gone to, and so which of these two people would regret their decision? And in that study, uh, one of the big correlations: people who suffer from schizophrenia have a hard time yeah. sort of sorting that out. That's yeah. that's incredible to me that you can get to some of the mysteries of that affliction via whatever processes are yeah. important for experiencing regret. I think that's incredible. Yeah, yeah it's, and that's a great point. And, and, and you can go outside, you can go outside in and inside out. That is, you can use regret and counterfactual thinking to understand some of the mystery of that horrible disease of schizophrenia. But you can also use um, the horrible disease of schizophrenia to understand some of the mechanics of regret and counterfactual thinking. So yeah. It's a great way to it's a great way to it's a it's a great way to it's a great way to look at it. But if you think about it like that, that um, um, when we can't do this, this thing called regret, it's a sign of a processing problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in some ways, this philosophy of no regrets, that if you actually don't have regrets, that might be a marker for a serious problem. I mean, literally, it could mean it's like, oh, I don't experience regret. Okay, well, maybe you're a sociopath, or maybe you're five, <laughs> or maybe you have lesions in the orbital frontal cortex of your brain. Yeah, either if you truly are like, it, it means you're lying to yourself, or you're playing. I think you you said something in the book. Something I don't remember what it is, but it's like uh, you're pretending, you're play, you're acting, you're playing some sort of role, some sort of you're you're demonstrating some kind of quality for cultural value some you're not exactly being honest you're not being honest exactly you're it's it's performative you're performing and i think what you're performing is courage that is ah. we, we we think that that no regrets is a sign if i say i have no regrets it's a sign that i'm courageous but it's it, that's false courage real courage is 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 staring your regrets in the eye and doing something about them wow that's good oh my god do i put that at the beginning of the show or the end because that was perfect uh, the, <laughs> you the, can use <laughs> You can use it as a as a as a teaser or trailer. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, yeah, there was one other thing I wanted to say in this part that that I loved. Um, there were these surveys of uh, married couples and the the negative emotions they feel, and the most common negative emotion in a marriage you write was regret, but it's also the second most emotion period that people feel in that do- in that dynamic second only to love. That is yeah. amazing to me. Yeah, and it wasn't so much about, that study was not about marriage per se. It was about what they did in that study, and it's it's really interesting, and it's a fascinating technique, is, is they recorded the conversations of married couples. They also recorded other conversations as well. And so what you do is you record the, the everyday conversations of people. You essentially eavesdrop on their lives. And then you take the conversations, you, you transcribe them, and then you code uh, for the emotions that are expressed. So you can look at there's a there's a code book that says okay this word signals this emotion this word signals that emotion. I mean they used to, th- th- some of this is done now with AI in the old days um, um, when when I was a a uh, not to get into the weeds here but when I was a linguistics undergraduate student we would have to actually code them 
by hand, one by one. And the and, and what they found is that in these everyday conversations, including everyday conversations within marriage, the most common negative emotion expressed was regret. Um, and the second most common negative emotion of any kind was regret. And so this is this is part of the case for regrets ubiquity. Uh, and I, I think that that case is airtight, that regret is is one of our most common emotions. It is ubiquitous. Everybody experiences it. And so we can't extinguish it. We can't eradicate it. We have to actually enlist it. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything, and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all. 
to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks. And drive down costs. And one. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. You do this great thing. You have all this stuff, and for the sake of for your sake and for the sake of the reader, we you organize these sort of taxonomy, this bestiary of types of regret. I would like to just run through them a little bit with what yeah. time we have. You talk about foundational regrets, boldest regrets, moral regrets, connection regrets. Talk about that at any length you'd like. Okay. So what I found in in analyzing all of these regrets from all over the world that came in is that around the world, people had the same four core regrets. And it didn't so much matter the domain of life. There was a little bit of a head fake in how we'd been thinking about regret, uh, about what people regret. Um, other researchers, myself included, had organized these regrets into the domains of a life. So this is a career regret. This is an education regret. This is a romance regret. And and I, I think there was something more interesting going on beneath the surface. Um, and so what I found are four core regrets. One are what I call foundation regrets. That's if only I'd done the work. These are regrets that people have about really from small decisions early in life that have negative consequences that accumulate later in life. So a uh, big one would be spending too much and saving too little. Oh, I'm 40 years old. I have no money because I spent it all and I haven't saved. Uh, uh, a lot of health decisions. Oh, I haven't exercised. I haven't eaten right. And now I'm in poor health. Uh, some regrets about not working hard enough in school. Uh, outside of the United States, not very often in the United States, but outside of the United States, particularly in South America, uh, a lot of regrets about smoking. So that's foundation regrets. Second regret, um, uh, boldness regrets. These are, if only I'd taken the chance. So these are people who regret not traveling, people who regret not speaking up at work or other places, 
people who regret not asserting themselves, people who regret not asking people out on dates in the past, a huge number of those, people who regret not starting businesses, huge number of those, not being more entrepreneurial in their lives and their careers. And so that's uh, boldness regrets are if only I'd taken the chance. You're at this juncture, and not a lot of these regrets begin at these junctures. You're at a juncture, you can play it safe, you can take the chance, and when people don't take the chance, they often, not always, but they often regret it. Third category, moral regrets. That's if only I'd done the right thing. Once again, you're at this crossroads. You can do the right thing, you can do the wrong thing. People do the wrong thing, again, not always, but a hell of a lot of the time, they regret it. And so what we see there are a lot of regrets about bullying, a lot of regrets about marital infidelity, those kinds of things. And finally, our connection regrets. That's if only I'd reached out. And these are regrets about relationships that have come apart, not romantic relationships necessarily, actually mostly not romantic relationships, uh, that have come apart. And one side says, oh, I really want to reach out, but it's going to be awkward to reach out and they're not going to care. So they don't reach out and things drift apart even more. And then it's more awkward and then they fear they're not going to care even less. And so these relationships that were once intact just come apart and it really bothers people. It really sticks with people. And, um, and you know, and on, on that one, we were making, so, so there's a pluralistic ignorance, meaning that, um, that, that we think it's going to be really awkward and the other side's not going to care and we're wrong. The other side, it's not as awkward as we think, but more important, here's where the pluralistic ignorance comes. The other side always cares. And if you say to people, well, if you had this friendship that drifted apart and the person reached out to you, yeah. would you think it was creepy? No, I think it'd be great. I'd love it. Well, then why don't you do it? Oh, no, they'd think it's creepy because they're so different from me. Um, and so, um, and so, you know, if there's a, if there's a single very specific life lesson embedded in this research and regret, it is always reach out. If you're at a juncture and you're wondering whether you should reach out, you've answered the question, reach out. Um, you know, always reach out, always go to the funeral. I feel that so strongly. Um, <clears throat> years ago, Kate Lever was on the show about the, the fringe. She talked, wrote a book about friendship and she talked about something similar about always reach out and that and men, men in the United States particularly are bad at it. Uh, for, yeah, and, yeah. And you really, she was like, I, I feel you with this because like you should just, whoever you're, whoever it is you haven't spoken to in a while, just send them one tweet and say, hey, I was thinking about you. I appreciate you. Just, yeah. just, just do it. They want to do it too. Somebody has to be the first person to do it. And I feel that all of these regrets, I'm sure everyone listening uh, these has, has a mix of all of these. And it really illustrates the, our shared humanity. It's sure uh, that we are uniquely human in, in these ways because each one of these is a portal into a vast literature and poetry devoted to tr unwinding and and trying to understand and deconstruct and and share in the, in the humanity of each domain you're talking about. This connection one though really does stick out to me because I over COVID I had a very close friend passed away from a heart attack at the age of 40, 40, at the age of 40. Oh my God. And I hadn't spoken to him in, in almost two years. And it was absolutely devastating to me that I could have at any point in time had these moments with yeah. him. That's the regret. And, yep. um, and I went to the funeral, I did the eulogy, but the, it felt like it was so empty to try to make up for that with a eulogy. It does. It did not compare to what it could have happened if I had reached out. I feel that very strongly. Yep. Yep. No, you're not. I mean, you're not alone. It's a, and that, that's another reason why 
that the that lesson is so enduring, which is you know all, always reach out. It, it, it changed me because I I'm someone who was not particularly good at reaching out, and I had a little bit of the pluralistic ignorance thing where I mm-hmm. thought, okay, they're going to think it's weird, even though I never asked myself, well, if they reach out to you, would you think it was weird? And I would say, no, no, I wouldn't think it's weird at all. You in the book, you devote chapters to these. These are these are deep investigations, and following the arc of the book, it feels like, oh no, we're in the in a poetry space where you just walk away and say, I hope you feel bad about that, but you don't, you don't do that. You move into the next part, which is, uh, okay, given all that this is true, what is the benefit here? And you, you illustrate that there are three core benefits to regret, and then that bounces out of that into prescriptive stuff. So in this podcast, let's move into the prescriptive space Yeah. by talking about um, what are the benefits of regret? What are these three big pillars of benefit? You, yeah, well, there are three big categories. One of them is is that it improves our decision making. Uh, it also improves our problem solving skills, and it deepens our sense of meaning. More granularly, uh, which I think is in some ways a better way to talk about it, you know, in, in retrospect, is that it helps us, you know, does things like helps us become better negotiators. Uh, it helps us get better at solving a whole variety of both conceptual and analytic problems. Uh, it can help us become better strategists. It can help us become better parents. That is, if we sensibly deal with this emotion of regret, not ignoring it, not wallowing in it, but just thinking about it, then uh, there's a pile of evidence showing that it confers all kinds of benefits on us. But uh, but as we were saying earlier, the problem is that no one ever teaches us how to do this. Well, let's talk about that. And I want to give away the book. I want people to buy this thing uh, and actually deeply read it for this for the purpose of becoming a better human being. But I want to talk about this idea of optimizing regret through anticipation and I'll yeah. just leave it there. What do you have to say about that? Well, I mean, here's the thing. Like, it's it's a good idea to avoid, try to avoid future regrets. Um, and the problem is, is that, I mean, you were talking before about prospection and retrospection, that a lot of our prospection is a little bit off. That is, we, we're, we're pretty good at anticipating regrets, but we're not we need some guardrails. So a, a few problems with anticipating our regrets. One is that sometimes it makes us too risk averse. So we're, um, you know, so the classic example of this is that people don't on multiple choice tests, they don't change. If, if they think about changing their answer, they don't because they go with the first instinct, even though the, the evidence is overwhelming that changing your answer is a good move. They don't change their, their answer on a multiple choice test because they can imagine the regret they'll feel from switching from a right answer to a wrong answer. <laughs> and that hurts a lot more than the pain of just sticking with a wrong answer. So they end up, so sometimes anticipated regrets makes gives us risk averse choices. The other thing about anticipating regrets is that you have to actually be, you have to curate them. You have to be sensible about them. There is, and you know this research, sorry, some of your readers do as well, but just for those who don't, there's a lot, there's some research, you know, pretty pivotal research in, in social psychology describing forms of decision-making. One is known as maximizing, one is known as satisficing. So maximizing is that I'm going to make the best decision in every circumstance. Uh, you know, I'm going to get the best hamburger. I'm going to get the best roofer on my house. I'm going to get the best tires on my car. Um, and and satisfices are, okay, I just want something good enough. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> to... to to oversimplify, but not by much, um, <laughs> uh, maximizers are miserable um, <laughs> because you can't maximize everything. And if you de- if every decision has this incredible sense of urgency to it, you're going to drive yourself bonkers. And so it's so we can't anticipate all of our regrets. If I say, "Oh my gosh, what should I have for dinner tonight? Should I have, 
you know, should I have um, uh, should I have pasta or should I have meatloaf? Oh man, I want to maximize that choice. What will I regret more, having pasta or having meatloaf? You know, it doesn't matter. Um, and and so and so, well, it doesn't matter because if we and here's where these four core regrets come in. I think we can make a again talking about prospection. I think we can make a pretty safe bet what you and I and your listeners are going to regret in ten years. And when it comes to what we're having for dinner tonight, we're not going to remember. We're not going to give two shits about that. When it comes to should I buy a blue car or a gray car, we're not going to care. Uh, when it comes to, you know, should I put on this sweater or that sweater today, we're not going to care 10 years from now. But 10 years from now, I think we can make a pretty safe bet that you and I, that, that if you have another friend like the one you just described and you haven't reached out to him or her, that you're going to regret that. Um, if you um, haven't taken an appropriate bold risk and 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 done something to learn and grow, you're going to regret that. If you do something that's the wrong thing, you're going to regret that. And so what we should be doing when we anticipate our regrets is maximizing on these four core things to build our foundation, to to learn and grow and lead a psychologically rich life, to do the right thing, to connect with people we love, and basically chill out about everything else. Will this matter in five years? Is it nice, is it maybe is a good shorthand I use sometimes for that. But but you know what? But but another I'll give you. Let me see you and raise you on that because I think there's actually an even better. Uh, there's a an, there's an adjacent um, decision making tr- uh-huh. uh, tool, which is like not even saying will this matter in five years. But what I look at it, it's going to sound a little goofy. It's like place a phone call to the you of five years from now, mm. so the you of twenty twenty seven, or even ten years from now, the you of twenty thirty two. And put yourself, pretend that you are that person and you're looking back. You're not going to care. I mean, truly, like most of the decisions that you made today, that that, that all of us made today, are going to, uh, they're not going to matter all that much in 10 years. But a few of them will. And so you want to get those ones right. And we know what those are. Those are decisions about love. There's decisions about morality. There's decisions about growth. And there's decisions about stability. And health. And all the, and this other stuff, well, health, health is a form of stability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, so so the so the so the ten so so ten years from now, ten years from now, um, you know, if I say let's say I I didn't exercise regularly, uh, and I, today I had a chance to start exercising regularly, if I don't do that, the you of ten years from now, the the me of ten years from now is is not going to be happy about that. <laughs> I, I mean it. Yeah. Know, but the, but the me of ten years from now, again, as I said, is not going to care. Um, you know, uh, what kind of, um, you know, what color tennis shoe I bought. It's, it is this meta perspective thing where I'm imagining the person in the future thinking back into the past and also their future here in the present, looking forward. That is beautiful. I love everything. I love how weird that is. And I love how it is totally weird. And you did a great job of describing it. And unfortunately, Mr. Zuckerberg has captured the meta, (laughs) the meta word. Uh, I'm going to try to get us to a soft landing here. Also, that reminded me, you were talking about that uh, switching your answer. There's some, there's something back in the old psychology stuff of it was, I think it was called the lottery ticket effect or something, where they where they would ask people in a survey like the you've bought a lottery ticket and somebody's offer is to pay you double for it, uh, yeah, and then people would wouldn't do it because the, no the the fe- there was that feeling of well, what if it ends up with, even though they currently have equal chances of winning, if I right. switched and that was the one that won. I would never yes. forgive myself. Exactly, uh, exactly. So, so what you end up doing is, but that's a, that's a great example of it. You end up, what you do is you make a, an irrational, suboptimal decision based on anticipating, on, based on anticipating regrets. 
So if I if I were to offer you, if you and I each have a lottery ticket, and and I were to say to you, hey, I'll take your lottery ticket and I'll give you two bucks, you should totally take that deal, but you won't because anticipated regret will get in your way. So I mean, I mean you might even not even take like twenty bucks. It's a, it's, it, I think there is a, like a, a an upper limit to where you're willing to bypass regret. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, given everything you said, I'd like to like land on one last thing. There's a of unbelievably, you would think that that would be enough for a book, but there's you have this whole section on how to not just optimize, but like actionable things with like lists and bullet points. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to just do one of those, which is uh, let's say you have done something, your behavior, your actions have resulted in a thing that you regret. What is what's some pointed advice as to to be given all that you've researched and written about? What should what I do? Well, if it's, an, if it's an action regret, it's something you've done, you can try to undo it. So you can apologize to someone you've hurt. You can make restitution. You can, I have a guy in the book who got a no regrets tattoo, regretted it, and then had it removed. So you can try <laughs> to undo it. Uh, the other thing you can do, which is psychologically helpful, is you can, what I call at least it, that is you can do a downward counterfactual. You can You can imagine how things could have turned out worse. And so I see a lot of these in the collection of regrets, especially, uh, from, from, you know, more, many more from women than from men that, that say, uh, I really regret marrying that idiot, but at least I have these two great kids. So you find a silver lining in it that can make you feel better. But, um, the, 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 the most important thing to do is to, is in any kind of regret, whether it's a regret of action or inaction is to, you know, treat yourself with greater kindness rather than contempt to disclose it and try to make sense of it through language and then to take a step back from it and draw a lesson from it. And if we take that very systematic approach, uh, we, there's no question that we can enlist our regrets as forces for good. What do you hope people get out of reading this book? Like what is for you, what do you hope people take away from it? Oh, I, I want to, I, I want to normalize regret. I want people to realize that they all have regrets and it's okay. And if we think about them, we can enlist them to do better. Uh, I want to try to uh, really, in a broader sense, reclaim this emotion um, and snatch it from the hands of the No Regrets Brigade, because I think if we actually think about this emotion in general and negative emotions, this emotion in particular and negative emotions in general, um, we can learn a lot from them. And so if I can normalize regret, reclaim regret, have people think about it differently and have them do one or two things to use their regrets to learn and grow, um, I feel like it's my time on the planet for the last couple of years has not been a total waste. Daniel Pink, always an immense pleasure. And uh, I just love that you just won't stop writing these books. <laughs> You've done a great job of creating this brand. All things pink uh, means something to me. <laughs> uh, I like, I'm like, oh yeah, here comes a good, this is going to be good. What did you get into this time? So I really love that you jumped into the, something as uh, nebu seemingly nebulous as yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and really got something cool out of it. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Hey, everyone who came to the Conversation Lab, uh, several hundred of you, that was really great. Uh, I hope you all can come to the next one that we do. I'll have links in the show notes the next time we have one of those, and I'll tell you all about it. Uh, for links to everything that we talked about in this episode, head to youarenotsosmart.com. 
for all the past episodes, go to Stitcher and SoundCloud or iTunes or Omni or Spotify or YouAreNotSoSmart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Also on Facebook, you can follow slash YouAreNotSoSmart. If you'd like to support the show, really the best way to do that is just tell everyone you know about it. Share it on social media, any episode that had value for you. Point it out, tell people, let's bring more people into this whole thing. And if you'd like to support it even further, you can help pay for a transcription, help make it better. Uh, go to Patreon, patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad free. But the higher amounts will get you posters and t-shirts, signed books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Banjo Apocalypse. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.